Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2143 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 11 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style of narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. I do appreciate that. appreciate everybody that helps out with, with our services here. Wouldn't be a Sunday service without some sort of props, would it? Uh, we have our mat here. We have our pool. We're dropping our microphone. So today, we continue our series of the good news according to John the Apostle. In addition to beginning this series today, we're beginning it at the third significant set, uh, section of the Gospel of John. The first one was the prologue where he talked about the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then we had the presentation of the Word where Jesus was presented to the world in his ministry. And now we're going with the authentication of the Word, knowing that Jesus is the authentic Lamb of God. Last week, we were up in Galilee, in the town of Cana, in the town of Capernaum, and we had the royal official son who was healed. And now John gives us another snapshot. If you remember, the Gospel of John is not chronologically written. You can't read through it and get a timeline. John takes these pictures of different events that he wants us to focus on, and he teaches us the lesson that he wants to teach us within that good news, that Gospel of John. To review the good news up to this point, the Lord's ministry began well. A bold announcement by John the Baptizer immediately yielded five disciples with unreserved commitment to follow that Son of God. He turned the water into wine at the wedding, which strengthened his disciples' faith. Then in their story, we flash forward to the temple during Passion Week, where Jesus drove out the traders within that courtyard who were selling animals and exchanging money. Then we saw Nicodemus in the garden at night come to Jesus and ask him, what must I do? And Christ said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus sought him out. He performed signs and miracles in Jerusalem, and he redeemed an entire town in Samaria, Sychar, with a woman at the well who preached to her entire town, and they all came to know Jesus. And last week, we had that healing of the official son. And throughout this ministry so far, we resulted in many people from all quarters of Israel trusting Jesus as their Savior. And while the Lord's ministry had not been without conflict up to this point, the general response to Jesus was pretty positive. But now things are starting to change. It's like that cool breeze in the autumn with a tint of winter in it. And you feel that crispness of the autumn breeze. And you know winter's on its way. 
A few began to oppose Jesus in his ministry, followed by more. And the Son of God came into the world to shine a light of truth. Yet some people remained in darkness. Instead of uniting Israel, the word became, came to create a division within Israel. Jesus was the very embodiment of the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We should not be surprised when we read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, when it says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Between, it's cutting between the soul and the spirit, between the joint and the marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And the passages explores something that we might have heard about, but maybe we wouldn't understand completely. That subtle and insidious term called legalism. And it happens even in our age. The classic legalists of Jesus' day were the Pharisees, the brotherhood of expert religious people who considered, considered themselves the separated ones. Now, I have to say that Paul and I grew up in churches that tended to be somewhat legalistic, where the list of do's and don'ts rated you on how spiritual you were. Now, they were preach the gospel, you were saved by grace, but did your life reflect it based on their list of do's and don'ts? And while the churches did provide reasonable, solid teaching environment, because of legalism and its being a subtle, silent killer, it generally robs us of that being immersed in God's grace, realizing that everything we have is by the grace of God. And we found that it was difficult with each passing week to raise our children in that environment. We need to understand that enemy of legalism so we can confront it. We need to know what it is, how it appears, and why it's wrong. So what is legalism? Legalism is based on a list of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs according to man. And legalists love their list. If you keep every, a list of do's and don'ts, you were deemed spiritually righteous and acceptable. And in some ways, it's easier for us to follow a list, isn't it? If we know exactly what's right and what's wrong, instead of having to go to God's word to determine that, isn't that easier? Most people would find it more comforting for them. But we find that when you do so, you start judging people in God's favor, and you start approving or disapproving of others' lives. So naturally, legalists always think that they know how God judges and they're not hesitant to play God in their judgment of you. How does legalism appear? Legalism is, that I'm more personally familiar with is the, the list of having to be in church every time the door was open regardless of what was going on. The music you listened to or that you sang both inside and outside the church. What version of the Bible do you use? What type of clothes are acceptable? Are you wearing your Sunday go-to-meeting outfit or not? The people you associate with. And lastly, what your view is on the end times determined how spiritual you were. And these examples are not to condemn Christian organizations or churches, but these are religious trappings to help us try to convince others of our agenda that has God's approval, but it's not biblical. Now, as a family, we became increasingly troubled 
with legalism. And I think the straw, the last straw that broke that proverbial camel's back was when we decided to take Sunday evenings and spend with Gramps after Granny died. He needed our compassion and comfort. We needed his. But then we were condemned for not being there when the church's doors were open. We thought, that's enough. That's not what true Christian faith is about. And I think that's the time when we actually switched and started coming to Putnam during that time. So why is legalism wrong? It denies the grace of God and presumes that you earn favor through your deeds that you commit. It is an artificial righteousness and exalts humanity rather than the Lord. Legalism produces either pride or depression, depending on what type of person you are. Pride for those who think they are keeping that list to the satisfaction of others, and depression for those that know that they cannot keep that list, and then they get depressed because they're never good enough to be righteous. Legalism is wrong because it produces in people what the Lord does, says is the worst, pride and self-loathing, hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And I did that scenario up front just to set the stage for our passage for today. We're looking at John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18 today, and I'm going to go through the passage as we go through the re- remainder of this, the sermon. John now shows us another snapshot of Jesus' ministry. After Jesus administered in Galilee for some time, remember the official son was healed, but we don't know how long Jesus was there. Could have been weeks or months, because in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, sometime later... Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And it's on page 1653 and 1654 in your pew Bibles if you want to follow along there. John doesn't tell us what this feast was. And the reason he doesn't tell us is because it doesn't add to his story that he's telling. But unlike the Passover, who had significant meaning because it was a picture of that Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, instead he merely tells us why Jesus came to Jerusalem. And at the beginning of his ministry, he would have appeared to travel between Galilee and Judea several times, and he would come to to Jerusalem when he was keeping the Jewish festivals. But one day, he will enter as the King of Kings, the King of Israel, but not yet. We're not there in John's Gospel yet. During Passion Week, we see that Jesus cleansed the temple to claim absolute ownership of that most significant symbol in Jerusalem, in the nation of Israel, which was the temple. But his purpose then will be to restore true worship to God as the Lamb of God has had ultimate sacrifice. But before this visit to Jerusalem, he was to claim something else that was held dearly to the Jewish religious leaders. One of their most treasured institutions, which was the Sabbath. Now, his purpose on this occasion was to restore grace and to abolish legalism. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he visited an infirmary of sorts. It was sort of like a hospital of that day. And in that lay, around this pool, a bunch of people that were crippled, maybe blind, 
lame in some manner. When Jesus arrived, we also have to take note that this occurred in the shadow of the temple. In verse 2, it says, Now there is in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and it was surrounded by five color covered colonnades. Now, if you look at your bulletin insert today, you'll see off the right-hand side where the picture is, Bethesda. And these were that pool where those who were crippled and lame would lay around the pool for a reason. And you could see the Temple Mount on the left-hand side, and that was where the Sheep Gate was, going into the Temple Mount there. You can see some of the other historical items there around that area to give you a picture of what we're talking about. The temple authorities, especially the Pharisees, though, they would not enter that Bethesda porch, that pool where the crippled and the lame lay, because they were unclean. They had some infirmament to them. And if they got near them, they would be unclean, and they rebuked any Jew who, did not, who went into that area, but not Jesus. Now, a portion of chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 wasn't in the original Greek manuscripts. Most likely, an early scribe of the 1st or 2nd century added text for clarification based on the knowledge of a tradition that was prominent at the time. Now, in the NIV and the New Living Translation, both, it only has the first part of verse 3, and you might have the rest in italics. In verse 3, it says, Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And that's what was in the original manuscripts. And it was added at some point later, something to give clarification to it. And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. And the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. So this was the thought that if they could get into that pool when it was disturbed, they would be healed of whatever ailment they had. Now the name Bethesda, or Bethsaida, is the other term. It's used both ways. It's sort of a kind of place, play on words. It means house of grace, or the house of outpouring, such as in water. And it was a curious blend of both Hebrew and Greek religion and, and Greek superstition. It held that an angel of God periodically would come down to the pool, and this pool of water would be there, and to simulate the disturbance, an angel would come and stir the water. And when they saw that water stirring, the first person that would get into the pool, according to their superstition and myth, would be healed. So we set the stage for this blind or this, this lame man today. We know now, by archaeologically dis discoveries, that springs that would run from the mountains, the water that would run from the mountains, would periodically filter in to springs underneath this pool, and that would cause a disturbance of water. But in their stories of the day, it was an angel that came down and stirred these waters. Now, there could not be a more fitting image of legalism, the religious legalism of Israel. The symbol of water is what? The symbol of life. Christ gives new life. 
And they laid desperately, these sick people all around this pool, just hoping that they would see that disturbance and then be able to jump in the pool, waiting for a chance to participate in a rather pathetic race of invalids into the water, in which healing would go to the least worthy of them, the one that was most able to get into the pool would be healed, according to their tradition. House of grace is what Bethesda means. What irony. That's not grace. Jesus visited these weary patients who were vainly trying to heal themselves. He found a man who had been sick for 38 years, longer than the average life expectancy of a male during the first century Roman Empire. He had been ill literally for all of his life. In verse 5, it goes on. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And going on to verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, John states that Jesus learned this. Now, we don't know that whether he learned it, somebody told him about this invalid had been there 38 years or some new supernatural awareness that Jesus had. John doesn't say. The question was most important, though. Jesus' first words to this man, and it was probably intended to get his attention, obviously, leading us and him to that important truth. In verse 7, it goes on. It says, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And the man replied, reply was telling. In the Koine Greek, the language that was used during that first century, the word order meant special emphasis. And in this case, the man stressed no one. He didn't have anyone who considered him worthy of his help. He recognized his helplessness. However, his object of faith was confused. Instead of faith in Jesus Christ who asked him the question, his object of faith was at pool. He says, no one's here to help me. He hoped for a bit of superstition, perhaps because Herod's temple had failed him. You could see the temple from where he was. But it was generally accepted theology of the day that if you were ill or sick or lame, it was because of some sin in your life. So he found no sympathy from those religious leaders in the temple. So he had given up on the religion. And he was hoping for superstition would heal him. Furthermore, he looked to humanity to help him win that race of healing down into the pool. Obviously, he had lost his hope in ever seeing God's true grace. But as many in our day think, God helps those who help themselves. And some would say, yeah, I know that's in the Bible, but it's not. Now, some of the principal biblical credence to that, if God gives you talents and abilities, he expects you to use them. But that verse is not in the Bible. But this man thought, well, if I could just help myself get into that pool, then I will be healed. The scene at the Pool of Bethesda must have been soul-rendering, an experience for any visitor who had the capacity for empathy. And sometimes I wonder, Jesus walked into that area, and there was lame people all around or blind people all around. Did he heal everyone? 
No, he healed one man. And you wonder why. But just like today, you'll hear of miraculous healings once in a long while. Somebody completely healed, like our story in last week's lesson. What doesn't everyone get healed? Because that's not God's will for everyone. Some people, he has a greater purpose other than supernatural, miraculous healing. Some of us are healed through medicines, which is a miracle in itself, and some are never healed based on what God's purpose is. Yet we must remember that Jesus left that pristine realm of heaven to become one of us, to share in our suffering, to experience our death, to ultimately end tyranny through the sacrifice of himself as that Lamb of God. But one day... Jesus will empty all the hospitals. He'll even empty all the graveyards. When he restores Eden to a global Eden on earth, without darkness or sin or suffering or disease and death, we have his promise on that. And I'm, for one, looking forward to that. Going through the decline my dad had and Paula's mom's having now, you just wonder how much can they go through? So I'm looking forward to the day when we're not suffering like that again. Take note, though, that Jesus did not preach to this man. He didn't go in and say, your sin is causing this. He didn't correct this man's failing theology, saying, it's not the stirring of the waters that you need. It's God's grace that you need. Now, people who lack hope don't need more preaching. They don't need more knowledge of God's word. They need a little bit of compassion. Instead, Jesus gave man what he lacked, this man what he lacked so desperately. He gave him grace in the form of this command. We see this man was sitting on his mat, unable to get up, unable to move just a short distance to that pool. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And what happened? At once, he picked up his mat, and he walked. He took his mat, and as the tradition of the day, he probably rolled his mat into a bedroll and carried it with him. What isn't indicated here is that where was Jesus after he gave that command? Instantly, this man's body responded to that healing power of Jesus. The man responded with, to the words of the Lord. And John's description of this scene is undoubtedly a deliberate understatement. Can you imagine if you were healed after 38 years? You'd be shouting and leaping and praising and so joyful, running around. His limbs, which were atrophied and could walk, not walk on him, for 38 years were now completely restored. And during this time of celebration, more than likely is when Jesus walked out among the crowd and left unnoticed, as so many times he did. And as we celebrate with this man, as John often does, he drops another sidebar in here, but this one is like a wet blanket. He says, oh, by the way, in the rest of verse 9, the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. Uh-oh. Everybody in Jerusalem knew what that meant. And anyone who knew anything about the Pharisees understood this significance. 
that this simple statement made, he was, this literal killjoy foreshadows this bizarre twist in the story. In verse 10, as the Jewish, and so the Jewish leader said to this man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. And while John doesn't interrupt the logical flow of the story, apparently the scene has changed. He's no longer in by the pool of Bethesda because the, the Pharisees would not go in that area because of the uncleanness there in their minds. So this man must have been walking along, carrying his bedroom home or maybe into the temple where he would partake in a feast the first time in many years. But instead, he was scolded by these Jewish leaders, which John is John's term for these religious authorities. For what? For carrying something on the Sabbath after 38 years of being an invalid. That was a tradition that was strictly forbidden by the Pharisees, but acceptable in the law of Moses under extraordinary circumstances. Remember, though, that he created the, they, the Pharisees created the Talmud, which was rules on how to do everything in life. And they had 24 chapters on just how to observe the Sabbath. And if you look on your other side of your bulletin, insert, I'm not going to read it all, but this is for your own learning. But in paragraph three, it says, the simple command rest, as on the Sabbath, the Pharisees added a long list of specific pro prohibitions. And just in case they overlooked something, they established 39 categories of forbidden activities. And you can read them all there. 39 things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. They just wanted to make sure they had them all covered. One of those was carrying your, your mat on the Sabbath. The scenario is a perfect example of a legalistic obsession with the letter of the law while forgetting the intention, the spirit of the law. The Pharisees strictly applied the words of Jeremiah 17, verse 21, but they failed to recognize the context. And that verse says, this is what the Lord says, listen to my warning. Stop carrying on your trade at Jerusalem's gates on the Sabbath day. They pulled it so far out of context. Jeremiah complained because the seventh day of, of, in Jerusalem was business as usual. They went about their activities like any other day. But the Lord instituted the Sabbath for a gift for us. He ordered a day of rest so we can rejuvenate our bodies and our minds. More importantly, it was given to break the day in and day out routine of work, that cycle of work, so people would take a break and focus on God and the provisions that he gives to us. The Sabbath permitted people to stop work, not neglect the vital need of worshiping God. We created, we are created for worship. Therefore, worship is good for us. But the Pharisees turned this wonderful gift of God into a burden, an occasion for severe criticism, an excuse to exercise their power and authority, another opportunity to remind themselves and everyone else of their superior moral worth. This is legalism in its finest. The heel man explained the extraordinary reason for this minor violation to the Pharisees' rules. In verse 11, he says, he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. But take note of this glass half empty perspective of the Pharisees. 
which would be comical if it wasn't so appalling. In verse 12, he says, so they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? An average person would have at least been a little bit intrigued by this instant healing in this lesson. But the Pharisees bypassed this opportunity to celebrate the grace of God, to flesh out a potential threat to their authority. Instead of looking for a wonder worker to praise, the Pharisees went on search for a troublemaker that they could censure. In verse 13 and 14, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away in the crowd that was there. In verse 14, later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worthwhile may happen to you. Now, John wrote that he found this man in the temple, which strongly suggests that Jesus was looking for this man, and not just that he happened to find it, see him in the temple. And according to the Old Testament law, a person that was healed from leprosy would be, have to go to the priest to be examined to make sure they were clean, so that more than likely the Pharisees' requirement applied to other ailments also. So this man naturally might have gone to the temple to be checked out. Or possibly he just went to be grateful to worship alongside his Jewish brothers. Regardless, the man was in the right place when Jesus found him. And some have taken Jesus' warning to mean that this sin, or the, the man's sin had caused his illness, but Jesus later denies that moral cause and effect. Yes, we can treat ourselves in a manner that will destroy our bodies or our, our lives through sinful actions, but this isn't what Jesus is talking about here. We'll get, when we get to verse, or chapter 9 in our lessons, we'll see another story where a man was not condemned because of his sin or his sin of his parents. Having delivered this man from a physical affliction, Jesus sought to save the man from his eternal spiritual suffering. The worst thing that Jesus had in mind when he mentioned this would be hell. Jewish theology correctly said that sin deserves punishment. However, the rabbis incorrectly attributed physical illnesses of that day to God's wrath on that person. The true and ultimate penalty for sin is separation from God and up for all eternity. The man's response to Jesus was to this incredibly generous gift of grace was somewhat perplexing. In verse 15, it says, The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. So he left the presence of Jesus after Jesus spoke with him. He said, oh, now I know who it was. I'm going to go report back to the Pharisees. But rather than defend Jesus' deed, he appears to use it for his political advantage. He says, in effect, I didn't want to violate your rules by carrying my mat on the Sabbath, but that rabbi, that teacher, he told me what to do. And who was I to question somebody who had the power to heal me miraculously? Your argument is with him, not with me. So the Greek word he rendered went away here is better translated went after. And it usually indicates going after someone for a purpose. And it was common expression in the synoptic gospels for discipleship when they went after Jesus and followed him. One who goes after a mentor to learn from. The man turned away from following Jesus and affirmed his allegiance to these Jewish leaders instead. His response to Jesus proved quite different than the story that we'll read about in chapter 9 when we get there. John closes the story with two comments that explains the source of his growing tension between Jesus and the religious authorities. There's no dispute 
This is no mere squabble among theologians. This is the stake of authority. Who has the authority to do what? In verse 16, it says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And on this occasion and others both before and after, this wasn't the first time Jesus performed a miracle, and probably not the first time he performed it on the Sabbath. The particular hearing, though, begs the question, who owns that Sabbath? The religious leaders claim ownership of the Sabbath by objecting to Jesus doing these things, healing a lame man on the Sabbath, implying that there were more acts of grace than even what's mentioned here. Activities that the Pharisaic tradition forbids on that seventh day. Jesus' response to the religious leaders' false claim in two ways. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Well, that just raised the hair on the back of their necks. Working on the Sabbath, you say God's working? He began to point out that God never stopped working, but it's what you define as working. This goes to the root of the religious leader's theological presumption that work included any kind of activity. And he pointed, they pointed to Exodus chapter 20, which points back to Genesis 2-3, where God ceased his work on the seventh day, his work of creation he ceased, having ceased after the creation was done. But having refuted this faulty theology of the religious leaders, Jesus equated his act of grace with God's continual work of grace on our lives every day. God never, grace never quits. His work of grace continues on each day. It was an outright claim by Jesus that he was the owner of the Sabbath. And because the law came from God, God cannot be condemned by the law. The Son of God was merely continuing to do what he had done since creation. Since Christ was an integral part of creation, he continued his work from that point forward. His point was not lost by these religious authorities, though. They resented his challenging their illegitimate authority, and they rejected his claim of equality with God. This precipitated a plot to kill him. So this is why it leads me to believe this wasn't the first time Jesus had performed miracles in their sight, even on the Sabbath, because in verse 18 it says, For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Pharisees were right in their assumption. He was saying he was equal with God. And that just, they could not stand that. The word became flesh to establish, not to establish a new religion, he became flesh to restore that broken relationship between us and God. He came to restore that true worship of God, which doesn't presume to earn a blessing by a list of good deeds, of do's and don'ts that we do in our lives, but rejoices in unmerited favor. He delights to give us that unmerited favor. Unfortunately, the roots of pride run deep in our flesh. Each one of us are subject to it. We may be vigilant in our spiritual lives, vigilant in our spiritual lives, but we have to make sure that our spiritual life does not become a list of do's and don'ts to gauge your spirituality. And we need to be very careful that we don't judge each other's lives because of things that do's and don'ts. Now, we have precepts in God's word. 
that seem pretty clear. But for the most part, we have to allow the Spirit to work in other people's lives and in our lives too. We must be filled with grace and share that grace with all people. And that's the lesson that we want to learn from today. Legalism, it robs us of our joy that we have in the Lord. When we feel we have to just do a list of do's and don'ts, and if we do that, we can check off, I'm spiritual, I'm spiritual, I'm spiritual. And I love to check off lists. And that's how I drive most days. But if I use that for my own spiritual well-being, my spiritual relationship with God, then it's not right. The Spirit of God needs to work through me and through each of you. Now, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. So we're going to depart for two weeks on our study from John during Palm Sunday and Easter. So I'd ask you for next week to read Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 16, and the message will be, He is the King of Kings. So be reading that in preparation for next week's message. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this lesson. Help us not to have legalism drive our lives, but to be holy because we follow your precepts found in your, your word. Allow the, the spirit, the fruits of the spirit to be manifested in our lives. When we do that, Father, we won't fall prey to a list of do's and don'ts. Thank you for this lesson of this lame man that you healed. Thank you for the lesson that you are the Lord of the Sabbath and that we follow you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward. Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.